Welcome to Made Not Born, a podcast about learning to lead for creativity. I'm your host, Alison Chadwick. I coach talented people to help them become true modern leaders, because the best creative leaders are mostly made, not born. They work out how to get the best from others through a sometimes messy but always fascinating journey of highs, lows and lessons. And this podcast is all about exploring that made not born journey. About seeing that leadership is something you can learn and picking up a little wisdom about how. I'm talking to some inspiring leaders with great stories to tell, inviting them to share what they've learned about leading for creativity from their own successes and struggles and what they're still learning now. So let's talk about leading for creativity with my guest today, Samantha Wright. Samantha is SVP of Social Impact at Participant, the leading media company dedicated to entertainment that creates social change. Through their stunning feature films and documentaries, Participant achieved both world-class creativity, marked by 19 Oscars to date, and a powerful uniting of art and activism through their social impact campaigns. An Inconvenient Truth, Roma, Green Book, Dark Waters are just four of many brilliant examples of the work they create and leverage for social good. Samantha's journey to leading participants' impressive social impact campaigns has been defined by her passion for creating change through storytelling and an impressive track record of doing so. She's tackled food poverty with the UN, run TEDx Beijing, mobilised action on educating girls as director of Girl Rising, built political will for climate action through her work at film company Exposure Labs, and in her role at Participants, she leads groundbreaking campaigns that genuinely move the needle on issues that matter. Impressive and inspiring, I'm pretty sure, as I've said to her, that Samantha could also run a country if she felt like it. And when you spend a little time with her, you can really see why. Samantha's clear sense of purpose, fierce integrity, huge brain and warm heart combine to make a potent leadership cocktail. I'm also not sure I've ever met a leader more open to their own continuous learning, to figuring out with real humility how to show up in ways that make a better impact on the world, which makes her a perfect guest for this podcast, of course, which is about learning to lead. And I'm delighted to chat to her today, all the way from snowy Toronto. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hi, Alison. Wow, that's so nice. Thank you for sharing that. That was really beautiful. Well, it's all true. I can't wait to hear more about your story in this conversation. So can we just start from the beginning? It would be really great if you could tell us something about where you came from, what the journey has looked like, and maybe some of the passions that propelled you onto the particular leadership path you've taken. You know, right now, today, I'm working in, at the intersection of storytelling and social change. And when I reflect back, you know, those two pieces have always been there in my life from a very, very young age, but it was only later that they really intertwined. And so on the storytelling side, you know, I was born and raised in Toronto in an interracial family. My mom's a new immigrant from Taiwan. My father was a multi-generational Canadian. So grew up in this household, mixed identity, language, culture, all of this stuff at a time when those things didn't always make sense. And the way you came to understand yourself in the world around you at school and in life, et cetera. And so for me, very early memories, questions about who you are and your identity and the stories we tell ourselves, these have been questions that have endured my whole life and have ignited a lifelong curiosity about how it all comes together. And that's really been such a through line for me. 
And then on the other side, as well through from a very young age, I was always like a tinkerer around social community oriented projects in the way that like, I think sometimes like my husband, like he tinkered with electronic music and whether that was in school, part of every extracurricular, you could imagine, newspaper or the yearbook or student council, whatever. I was running anti-drunk driving campaigns in high school and by university, I was building um, literacy programs connecting students to First Nations adults and low-income communities. And it's always just looking at ways to build and create and explore how to make an impact in the community I was a part of. Those two things have been there always as parts of me, as parts that I've explored. For me, when they started to come together was in my 20s after grad school, I ended up in Beijing on a Chinese language scholarship. And I ended up leading uh, the setup and launch of TEDx Beijing. And at the time, I was a TED super fan. This was the first year or two that TED was experimenting with this whole like TEDx thing in the world and was really running this program, connecting innovators, helping them tell their stories in the Chinese community that I really ignited a deep passion and realization of the power of storytelling itself as craft to move people in a way that I'd never seen like an argument do before. I'd never seen people change in this sort of profound way. It was like the answers, like the thing, the solution to the questions I always wondered about, you know, why, how, how do you do this? Or why do people think that way? Or how do you get people to change their mind or all of that stuff? All of a sudden stories and story well told became the answer. And I just became obsessed with it. It ended up this like multi-year crazy journey coaching TED speakers all around the world, which was a real trip. It was there that I sort of netted the storytelling. And the other thing that sort of connected to that TEDx experience was that I was found myself as like a local community organizer amongst a ton of other local community organizers across the region. I started to see something pretty amazing in that mix as well, which sort of came out of when you have folks united by a shared vision and sort of like belief instead of values, but freedom to just do their thing in a way that made sense for their community in their place. Yeah, so that's just a wonderful way to begin this conversation. What I really love about what you were just saying there, Samantha, is that phrase when you said, I just became obsessed with it, you know, obsessed with the ability of story to move people and, and make change. Because, you know, what it makes me think about, I said in the introduction that you have a really clear sense of purpose. And that's one of the things I think that makes you very inspiring as a leader. And I work with leaders a lot on finding their sense of purpose, finding their passion. And it is about what you become obsessed with, isn't it? It's where your energy goes, where your focus goes, what you start to really find that you just want to do more and more. So I think it's really inspiring already to hear that kind of emerging energy in you. So what happened after that? So obviously, Beijing was the very seminal experience for you. Did you start to see yourself as a leader there, do you think? When does one ever see themselves as a, like, quote, leader? Um, a certainly a builder or certainly creating things. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever actually felt like I was a leader. For me, the work I've done in leadership has started so, like I mentioned, my tinkering years. And I think what each chapter has brought are new horizons to explore and bigger projects to build. And I think in that way, leadership is this constant evolution of getting to apply the way you show up and the way you build and the way you work with others um, to achieve something in new and often more complex, tricky situations. And so for me, the experience in Beijing 
was not the first time, but maybe one of the earlier times I got to play on a bigger stage. And when you look back to those early days, and maybe you were already learning lessons about this from, as you say, the kind of tinkering years, and what did you start to learn, do you think, about how to mobilize people to follow you, you know, with your passions and and create great things together? What were some of those early lessons you learned, perhaps about, you know, galvanizing a team around you because you can't achieve these things on your own, can you? Not at all. When I think back to these earlier chapters in my career, I think I learned a lot about how many types of talent there are and how amazing people when given free reign to do their thing, what kind of A game they can bring. I mean, an example I can think of is with running a TEDx Beijing or TED program is part speaker coaching and sort of story development, part event management, part I don't know, madness and running around trying to get things done. (laughs) But the event management part was sort of new to me. I mean, I had done it on a small scale, but nothing of this size. And and I ended up just serendipitously meeting this woman, Dawn, who was this badass event producer. I mean, she did like crazy events at like the People's Congress for like thousands of IBM employees and just like kind of crazy setups and crazy environments. And now in hindsight, having done a lot of events, I mean, I just, some of the stuff she was teaching me was so basic, but she gave me all these tools and she just had a method of the madness and whether it was a run of show or best practices in terms of how to like do transitions between segments and all of that stuff. I mean, she knew her stuff inside and out and I just marveled and I just sat back and she just did it. It's been a continuing journey through my whole life, but is figuring out how do you enable the spaces for like people to do their thing while also gluing them together around a vision. Now, the cool thing around running a TED event is that everyone knows what the end product might ultimately look like. Like people can kind of imagine it. What's nice is it was a great early experiment in this because people sort of had a sense of the destination and then got to play within that and just bring their own flavor to it. And it was that was pretty cool to see. It's great. I think also what I'd love to underline or maybe ask you a little bit more about is that sense of passion and purpose again. I talk with leaders a lot about how motivating a sense of purpose can be for people who are working with them and what their sense of purpose is to really drive change and excellence. And yeah, I think it's sort of elusive to some people, you know, and they kind of feel, oh, what's, what's that all about, this idea of purpose? And, you know, it's so strong in the way that you talk about how all these diverse people came together to achieve great things at TED. Do you think that's something that when you think about the rest of your career, you know, these other wonderful places you've worked at, has that remained a theme in terms of leading for great things? If there's a really clear sense of purpose and people have passion for the project, that it really helps? Without question. Definitely. You know, you don't always get it. And I've seen it when it really works and when it's less there. When people are united by a shared why, whether that's in a company and it's a brand and people believe in that brand's why, or if it's a socially driven, mission driven organization, people believe in the mission, the sort of social mission, it provides an orienting compass that both helps you find the right folks to join the team. And then when you're there, it also helps you wade through options and pathways to make decisions because if only life were so simple and it was binary and it was like option A or option B, but usually it's this like really messy matrix of possible things you could do. And so when you have a clear purpose and a set of values around that, that people feel bought into or aligned, it sort of helps 
everyone see the path forward on their own without needing to like push it from the top, so to speak. And I think that creates a much more empowering and enabling environment when done well. Purpose-driven, wide-driven organizations, I think, when they are set up well, can be transformative to the culture and to the, I think, to the quality of whatever you end up making. I couldn't agree more. I think that's just a great answer. So Samantha, staying on your path, so from TEDx, Beijing, you went on to some amazing work at Girl Rising and getting into very specific issues around the education of girls there, again, through the power of storytelling. I'd love to just put a lens on, you know, building on what we were just talking about around being driven by a sense of purpose. I think one of the things that's very interesting about leadership is that you can have a very strong internal sense of purpose and motivation, but sometimes finding your confident voice to bring that to the outside world and lead through it can be challenging. So as you developed your leadership going, for example, into Girl Rising and and on from there, your leadership has been quite externally focused as well as internally focused, I think, hasn't it? You know, galvanizing different stakeholders, as you say, a multiple matrix of complexity and and different decisions that could be made. I'm just interested in, you know, how did you find your confident voice to get out there and change the world in the way that you have? Was it difficult to find your confidence or did it come really easily to you, do you think? For me, the question is, where, when and how do I find my conviction? Because I feel like there are times when my voice may not sound so confident in the world, and then there's times when I think it does sound confident. I think it's all driven by conviction. When I think it's there, I feel like for me, part of it is finding a why that I really, really believe in. And like it can be small. It can be like, I believe to do this thing, I need to do it because like it's important to somebody I care about, right? And it's the right thing to do. And I just need to advocate for it. And I believe in that. And that's it. Or it can be an issue in the world, like climate change or girls' education or the future of a just workplace or whatever it is. There's a range of things that can give you that sense of why, but taking the time to really align with the why. I find is so important for me to find that conviction. And I think the other piece is I get a lot of, like a ton of energy co-building with other people. And part of that is just doing a ton of listening and a ton of aligning and a ton of imagining together. And I feel like when I do that and I've really taken the time to link arms with somebody else or another organization or person or whatever, that doubly strengthens my conviction because I feel like the thing I'm asserting and saying or position I'm putting out into the world is anchored in community or a group of people that we're working on together. And so I feel like those are the two things that have helped me find that. That said, I should say, just because you have conviction or you feel confident and you're putting out a perspective that you believe in, the truth is, for me as a woman, as a young woman, as a young woman of color, I've felt that it doesn't always mean you'll be heard or understood, or sometimes you're really, really misunderstood. And I've spent a long time trying to sort of make sense of that and figure out, despite at times having something important to say, not always feeling like that's something people can hear. I mean, it's such an important point to raise, I think. And I'm sure a lot of people will be nodding and feeling a resonance with that. So, I mean, it's not an easy question to answer in a way, but do you think there have been any ways that you've learned to get past those blocks? I mean, for example, when I'm working with some of my clients on on their confidence, one of the things that 
can help them feel more heard is when they really dig in and find their strengths and work out how they can lead more through who they are at their best because it gives them the confidence to say, listen to me, you know, I deserve a seat at the table and, and I want to be heard. I mean, that's just one way of showing up to this, your situation, of course, complex and challenging. What do you think gave you the ability to get past those feelings of being misheard or misunderstood? I don't know if I've ever gotten past them, but I've certainly figured out different coping mechanisms or ways to figure out how to address some of that in different situations. And to be honest, it's still something I think a lot about, and I don't know if I've figured it out. Some of the things I use as coping strategies are probably not helpful. For example, if I feel like I have something important to say and I feel like it needs to be said, Sometimes I just give it away. I know a lot of women do this. It's like you give it to the guy in the room who other people will listen to. And that's sort of sad. It like breaks my heart. But sometimes you like if you need your message to get out there, you go to a messenger you think people can listen to. And what's so sad is that really reinforces some of the problematic barriers women face. But sometimes you, you want to just get it out there. So, so that's something I've, I've seen and I've done and has worked in the short term. But if we're talking about in the long term, I think this is a journey that we're all, like so many people are wrestling with. Things that I found, it's different if you're like in a board meeting, at a keynote, in a small meeting with friends, right? I mean, how you show up is different. I have found that a couple things for me have helped, you know, especially in those environments where you're not being heard. Part of it is is sometimes realizing when you need to be heard and when you don't. And I just, I don't always fight it. Having the quiet conviction, if you're on the right side of justice or you have the quality to back you up or all of that, like people come to you. And so not forcing it, but actually leading through excellence and leading through example and people feeling your conviction quietly. I found that actually, you know, people say, hey, Samantha, like, what do you think? And it is sort of refreshing when you hold your space in a really confident and anchored way. I found that sometimes when you think about like asserting your voice is you think about like speaking loudly. But actually, the more I find you make it a conversation and do a ton of listening and understanding of what's going on and respond to what's happening, that again, I think there's an opening to put your perspective out there on the table and, um, and engage productively. So that's another piece as well is really doing a ton of listening. And, and, and it sort of is, seems like counterintuitive, but I find the more you listen, the more you understand where the audience or the speaker or the group you're talking to is coming from. If you can do that well, which again, is there's times when you do that well, and you don't, it really strengthens that anchoring and also helps with you with your conviction and helps you articulate yourself in a way that meets people where they are and makes sense and I think that's its own art. Absolutely I couldn't agree more and I think that's just a brilliant answer. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt that said it's better to be interested than interesting and you know I think there is something so powerful about when you just create the space for listening and allow other people to feel heard they're just much more likely to listen to you in the most simple way so I couldn't agree more and the other thing I really loved about what you just said there was the idea of holding your space in an anchored way, maybe through having quiet conviction. And 
something else I'd love to ask you about because I know it to be true of you. You are one of the most impressively values-driven leaders I know. You have an incredible level of personal integrity about trying to really show up in ways that align with the impact you want to have as a leader. I know that to be true of you. My feeling is that that helps you create that quiet conviction, that anchored space, because you know what you stand for. And I would just love to ask you, you know, because again, values are one of those things that get talked about a lot, but sometimes they don't really kind of come to life for people in terms of what is this thing about values and why why are they helpful? From a leadership perspective, why do personal values matter to you and how do they help you lead, do you think? It's almost like a technical thing, right? Like, what are these values? How do you use yeah. them? Um, in practice, all people have values that drive them. You know, they're driven, they're anchored in the way you were raised and the environment you came up in or you pushed up against or whatever it is. There's a set of values that like are at the center of who you are. And I think for me, the practice has been part introspective, like better understanding who you are and what you stand for and what you believe in and why and part clear articulation of those in better understanding yourself and understanding what you believe in, what you don't believe in. All of that stuff helps you build a a finer, more attuned compass. We all have that feeling, that gut feeling when it's like things are off, like this doesn't feel good, or like, wow, this feels like flow, like this feels really good, like I feel like this is all right. For most of your life, for you know, you spend your time just like feeling that gut, but it's like a messy, it's a messy compass, like the gut. It's important, but it's sort of messy. And I think that process of introspection and then articulating what it is that you value and believe and why and all of that then gives you a more refined way to cycle back to the experiences you're living through and interrogate them with more precision and be and, and as a result be more intentional. I think we're all values driven people, but I think acknowledging that, embracing it and then trying to actually sharpen it is still something I'm working on, but it helps like close the loop instead of like long existential reflections yes. like, oh why didn't that go well or what do I do here? Blah blah blah. It just like makes it really quick. Like, okay, this doesn't feel good. Why doesn't it feel good? I think it's because there's a misalignment on this. You know, let me figure that out. And then you, you can have a more focused rumination around what's feeling good or not good. And so for me, that's why values are so helpful is that we're all values driven, but the more I can give a definition and then create some strategies around engaging those values, the faster I can quickly grapple with things that are hard often. So it's been really valuable for me, that process of like ever tightening my sense of self and through that, my the values that, that are important to me. Again, I think there's something really interesting to kind of amplify there in what you were saying, Samantha, about the journey of learning to lead. I love what you said about the gut is a messy compass. I think that's such a great phrase. And again, one of the things I work with all the time, I mean, in a way, it's kind of absolutely at the heart of the work that I do with leaders is that shift from instinctive behavior to intentional behavior. And you mentioned the practice of being more intentional helps you make decisions better. And and actually, in these uncertain times, which we'll come back to perhaps in a minute, I think that's truer than ever, isn't it? Because you need that kind of inner center of gravity, that quiet conviction again, when you don't really have the external data to give you certainty about your decision making you really got to rely on that inner sense of 
as you say, kind of conviction of values of purpose. So it's the place that I work in all the time. And I think the way that you've expressed it is really interesting around how it helps you lead better, faster. So that's super interesting. How does it help your team, do you think, that you're values driven? I mean, when you have a, a clear sense of what you stand for and what, what you believe in, how do you think that benefits a team? I kind of wish you could ask them. <laughs> I feel like I hate to guess. I'm definitely curious. I think just like a brand, actually, the more clear people sense who you are and the values you have, at the very least, I think helps them anticipate and work and collaborate with you better. If one of my values is moving fast and somebody has value is moving slow, that might be different. And that's okay. There's beauty in the difference. But then we know each other's values are a little bit different. And it allows us to bridge better, I think, because we can anticipate where each person's coming from. And the thing about values is so deep that it's actually so much a part two of like who you are. And so in some ways, celebrating difference and celebrating the differences that people bring means celebrating in some ways like a range of values. So for me, I hope that when people know me better and have a better sense of what I stand for or my values, like it helps them work better with me. But then I think in the best environments that I've been in, the teams that have worked the best, when there's values alignment, which ideally happens too, it can ignite this powerful teamwork. Moving back to the passion that you have for making a difference to issues that matter through the power of storytelling. You've been on an amazing journey working with Girl Rising, with Exposure Labs, and now with Participant. I'd love you to talk a little bit more about the kind of work that you do, because I think, for example, at Participant, a lot of people listening to this will be familiar with the amazing work that Participant creates, An Inconvenient Truth, for example, but they won't necessarily appreciate the incredible social action that you mobilise through it. So it would be great to just hear a little bit more about some of that amazing work that you do and then perhaps how you've really learned to lead teams to achieve these amazing game-changing campaigns with you. We've talked, of course, about values, about purpose, but anything else you've really learned? Working on participant is this amazing pinnacle at the intersection of storytelling and social change. We get to work with some of the greatest artists of our time, making incredible feats of film and documentary and episodic content and just give us this powerful stuff to build around. And so first, you know, what is such a pleasure is getting that rich, diverse repertoire of content. Recently, movies like American Factory, if you haven't seen it on Netflix, I mean, a crazy and amazing and thought-provoking documentary about dignity at work and cross-cultural dynamics and all sorts of amazing things to, you know, uh, we just released a film just last week called Judas and the Black Messiah, a feature film about the history of the Black Panther Party, specifically Chairman Fred Hampton. And just getting to work on such a diverse slate every year is, it's like a kid in the candy store. And my job is figuring out how to take that art and connect it to do the most good it can and really figure out how we translate the art into something that can move the needle on a range of social issues. So that's what I I do. And I lead our social impact department, figuring out what the strategy of how we do that looks like, and then translating that into a suite of campaigns every year. And one example is um, in late 2019, so a couple years ago, we released a feature narrative film called Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway. 
And it's this really powerful, true story of this attorney, Rob Lott, who basically is working to uncover this dark secret connecting all these unexplained deaths to one of the world's largest corporations. And a spoiler alert here, <laughs> the secret, what that secret is, is a highly toxic chemical known as PFAS, also known as Forever Chemicals, which was contaminating the water. It can be found now in like ton of things, all that we consume, you know, it never breaks down in, in the environment and it builds up in our bodies and very small doses have been linked to cancer and other diseases. And it's really quite scary and, and it's happening. It's a real thing that like we should be all really mindful of. And so there's this film that we put out that, that, would, that is gripping. It's a suspense thriller. It's really fun to watch. I would highly encourage you to watch it if you haven't seen it. I mean, it's just a great movie. And we saw that this was an amazing opportunity as well in this movie to use it to drive change and really think about how the film could be a catalyst to advance work that community organizers and social movements and all sorts of different organizations could use to advance the work that they're doing. So we built a campaign around the launch of the film to catalyze awareness and to accelerate the action against Forever Chemicals. And so that looked like a, first a coalition of partners from the Sierra Club to NRDC and Safer States and just a range of Again, great, smart, thoughtful partners who've been in this game for a long time. And together we built out lots of activation screenings and meetings and things that took advantage of the energy that like a Hollywood launch brings to a moment. While some of the outcomes of that work are still happening since the launch of the campaign, it's exciting to share that there's never been more action on PFAS in state, U.S. state and federal legislatures in any other period in history. The campaign's influenced at least 13 pieces of legislation in the states, including important measures to clean up and mitigate and ban PFAS in Europe. Um, 34 multinationals pledged to go PFAS-free. The EU has even announced a total phase-out and ban of PFAS as a class since the movie released and since we went to the EU and and brought the Hulk, <laughs> aka Mark Ruffalo, to those halls. You know, And then even mo more recently, North Carolina, one of the places where we see in the film and we see a lot of this action happening, recently North Carolina's attorney general has now begun a lawsuit against DuPont, which is the corporation that film, and, um, and launched a formal investigation. So a movie can do a ton, but if you can be really smart about what you do to connect that film to really specific audiences at really specific moments um, and help people draw connections between what they're feeling and seeing in the story and what opportunities are in front of them to drive change, we found that movies can be really game-changing in connecting the dots and really pushing key things past tipping point. It's a fantastic example and I think really gets to the heart of why your work is not only incredibly exciting but also incredibly important. It's just breathtaking the impact of things that you reeled off there and that's just one of the movies that you've been involved with. So going back to your experience of being a leader, it's interesting I think because sometimes I think people would say well you know if you work in an organization where you're doing amazing things that are changing the world then it's easy to galvanize a team you know because of course they always want to work hard etc but you know in my experience of working with even organizations like yours that do have an incredibly strong sense of purpose there are still good days and bad days in terms of leading the team and, and galvanizing people's energy so notwithstanding the fact that you have a very clear sense of purpose and amazingly exciting and important work to do how do you think you have learned to galvanize your team to really 
say, come on, let's achieve these amazing things? What matters, do you think, in terms of your daily leadership to achieve those great things? It's funny because you think people who work in social impact driven things, like easier, right? Because it's like, wow, you're doing such good work. It changes the world and it must feel good. Everyone wants to come today, like hop in their step, you know? But if anything, people who work in social change as a space come in with such strong conviction that they hold you and they hold themselves and they hold everyone around them with like a higher standard of excellence and integrity than you might find in other organizations. And so it's a really interesting place to be because it keeps you on your A game, make sure you're asking important questions and doing things for the right reasons. And so that provides an interesting environment to lead in or to collaborate. So what have I learned in all of that? I mean, I think the contribution I can say that I try to make in environments where you have a lot of people coming together with big visions and goals and ambitions and a ton of integrity and heart is helping align people with clarity around what we're here to do and what we're here not to do. And I'm sure this is true in any with any organization, but there's just a million, countless, limitless things you can try to change, right? Like if you talk about, like using the Dark Waters example, I mean, there's nothing short of trying to change how the little guy interfaces with the big guy and how corporations the, the the regulations and the power the corporations have in the economy to pollute or not pollute the environment. I mean, the scope of what is at the heart of all of it gets so big so fast. And so part of, I think, what I've tried to do and help with is give clear boundaries and focus to the work and say, you know, like have the long game in mind, but really figure out what a win looks like in the short term and really define that as tightly as possible so that you're aligning everyone. Again, it comes back to shared goals, shared vision, shared values. And so by going through a process of taking, you know, a divergent set of ideas and possibilities and converging that into a really clear win state and a really clear mission and goal for every campaign or every team or every organization, the clearer you can be, it can help create the enabling environment for people to like bring in their best ideas. Where I found sometimes it can be a bit very messy is if there isn't that clarity. And so people then can talk past each other or be misaligned or it can get needlessly messy. Also trying to hold space for ideas to be shared and learning to be cycled back as quickly as possible. And so again, I think I found that people have so much to bring. And so the more you can help create the spaces for people to like better mind meld and learn quickly from what's working and not working and then bring that back again. I found that if I, again, when I'm my best at work, I'm creating those spaces for those conversations to happen really seamlessly. That also helps strengthen the quality of the work, the creativity of the work and the energy of, of the people working together. One of the things that I say a lot to the leaders I work with is don't overestimate how much clarity exists around you. You know, there's so much mess out there in the world, as you say, and it's such a gift for leaders to bring clarity and alignment to their teams. And it's very easy, I think, for a leader to overestimate how much clarity there is. And I see it all the time. People saying, well, you know, they know who's deciding what or they know who's responsible for what or what the goal is. And actually, you talk to the team and they don't necessarily know. So I think it's really such practical lessons there, actually, but really, really important ones about holding space for people to come together, but also really give them clarity of what you're aiming for. It's great. Anything that you've learned anew through this very hard year as well, Samantha? I mean, it's a question I'm asking everybody because the 
extraordinary challenges of the pandemic year are just in the room for all of us still. And even the most seasoned leaders, I think, have found it a very challenging time to lead through, um, not just because of the pandemic, obviously many huge societal um, issues uh, to be grappled with. Is there anything new that you think you've learned about leadership in the last year? Yes, a ton. The thing that comes to mind is this year, it's been a both amazing and really hard. You know, amazing that the remoteness working from home has brought us closer in some ways, right? You see people in their living rooms with their kids in the background and, you know, we can break between meetings and give our loved ones a cuddle or whatever it is. And, you know, it's all there and and there's a sort of closeness that comes in your life and in your relationship with others, but also at the same time, a distance. And I think I've never appreciated more than I do now, the chemistry and that intangible of being together in person. I mean, really just like seeing someone. I mean, I, I, I forget sometimes like, is this person tall or short? Is that person tall or short? <laughs> you know, like, like just energy that people have in a room. And I think what's been hard and where there's tons of room for learning and growth that I've been exploring is when you don't have that chance to be together, like I think it's easy to come to more misunderstandings. It's, it's harder to hear people. It's harder to hear what they really mean or see because it's all very surface, right? Like your quick clips on Zoom and emails and all that stuff. And you don't get the exhale from like walking out of the room with them or taking the time to go get a, grab a coffee or just seeing them in passing, just laughing right in the in the hallway and by missing all those like little nuggets about people in some ways it's easier to collaborate I mean on the like I honestly on the technical business side but on the like cultural adaptive side about just people coming together as people I think it's been harder and so I've been trying and succeeding and failing um, at different ways to do that you know like we've tried different icebreaker type things or different strategies to help us create more of that unstructured space. I don't know if there's a substitute really online. And so that's something I just have been thinking a lot about. And if I've learned anything in it is, is how important it is. It's a great answer. I think yeah, one of the things that all leaders are having in common around this conversation is working out when we are able to come back together in person, what we come back for, what will be really important to reconnect for in person and what doesn't matter so much and that actually the ability to work flexibly is a, is a gift, you know. So I think it's really interesting, isn't it, feeling our way through that sense of what do we really miss and, and what actually can't you quite replicate online versus some, you know, some of the benefits of it. So last question, and this is quite a tough question, I'm sorry, but I ask it of everybody because I think it's great to just distill down at the end to one thing. So Samantha, if you had to pick the most important thing that you've learned over the years about leading for excellence, what would it be? If you had to just put one piece of advice to your younger self on a postcard to say, you know, you're going to go out there and change the world through the power of storytelling when you take people with you, remember <laughs> to do this as a leader. <laughs> what would be what would be your piece of advice? Well, first, I wouldn't. The younger me wouldn't be like, "What? That's a career? You're crazy. That's amazing." <laughs> it would be, I think, on the postcard, be a gardener, not a carpenter. <laughs> that idea to Alison Gopnik, who's actually a child psychologist and, t and writes about parenting. <laughs> so maybe you can see where my head is at these days. But I think it's as true for parenting as it is also for running and building teams and collaborating, which is the idea that being a carpenter is about like shaping a precise thing, you know, like 
I think the team should be like this, or I see the outcome in a very particular way. And I'm going to like build that in a very, very focused, very specific way. What I have found both inside teams and in the work that I do when it works really well is when I help garden more than, than be a carpenter and sow the right conditions to enable a lot of possible futures to happen. And so it looks like creating cultures that let people thrive. It looks like creating systems and processes that build clarity, but also allow for creativity and flexibility. And that's true also in social movements. You know, I found that when you're supporting social movements to not be so narrow and saying like, this is the only thing that success can look like, but being open to a plethora of possible great things I found that um, that's when greatness comes because often greatness is totally unexpected, the, the most great, great thing. And so creating space for the unexpected to emerge by allowing a lot of people to do their thing in their own way when it's done well is the recipe for really awesome, creative, exciting uh, work. So yeah, my postcard would say, be a gardener, not a carpenter. That's just brilliant. Can I just ruthlessly steal that? for my work (laughs) because it's a concept that I work with all the time and I just think it's a brilliant way of uh, expressing it so thank you to Alison Godnick and also to you for bringing it to the conversation I think it's just a brilliant postcard Samantha thank you so much it's been such a joy to talk to you at the beginning of this conversation I described you as having a clear sense of purpose fierce integrity a huge brain and a warm heart and I just think the way that you've described your journey and your passions uh, your values the way that you challenge yourself to try and show up to your team and show up to the partners that you work with to change the world through storytelling. There's so much thoughtfulness and integrity in there. And I think so much for other people who are on their made not journey to just feel inspired by. So I really appreciate you coming and and chatting to me today. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was a great conversation with the inspiring Samantha Wright, SVP of Social Impact, a participant. I particularly love what Samantha said about leadership being a constant evolution and how for her that's partly been about finding the power of quiet conviction and also clear values to really hold her space and find her voice. I also love what she said about the power of having a shared why across a team to provide a really orientating compass for the team to make good decisions. And then finally, I loved the point that Samantha was making about aligning people with clarity about what they're going to put their energy into and also what they're not going to do. Such a valuable lesson. I hope that maybe this episode has given you a little fuel for your own Made Not Born journey, whatever path you're on. If you've enjoyed it, please rate, review, share and subscribe to Made Not Born wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. And finally, if you'd like to know more about my leadership coaching practice, visit growpeople.co.uk. Thanks for listening.